Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And we are so excited to be joined by Dr. Claire E. Aubin, who is going to tell us a whole lot about monsters and Nazis and everything in between, and maybe ghost stories, maybe what you uh, love about academia and uh, monsters and monstrousness. God, I'm excited. Welcome, Claire, to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to get into it. We are so stoked as well. Just to kind of start off, can you tell people a little bit about what your work tends to focus on in academia? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I've just finished my PhD um, and my PhD dissertation and most of what I work on um, was on Holocaust perpetrators. So not just like general Nazis, but people who specifically um, perpetrated the Holocaust um, as immigrants to the post-war US. So looking at the sort of like Nazi next door trope and the sort of imagination that surrounds what a Nazi after the war looks like and specifically like hidden or concealed Nazis in America look like. So I do a lot of sort of work, obviously on that and on their actual lives and experiences and how those compare to the narratives that we have about them, but also a lot of work on sort of what Nazis in popular culture and American culture look like and sort of the conception that we have around them. So that's a lot of what I do. I also do a lot of stuff on sort of the, the, right and anti-Semitism in the U.S. at the moment, but it still kind of tends to come back to our idea of like what evil and Nazism and all of these things look like versus what they actually are. Yeah, that that's such a fascinating subject. And like you think about kind of the way that I guess after the Cold War, we kind of went away from Nazis of the bad guy in like films. And now we're kind of coming back to it at the same time. Like I know we got Nazis again in an Indiana Jones movie, which I feel like it can't be an Indiana Jones movie without a Nazi. So Mm -hmm. I'm very, very curious to get us started. And I'm sure there's a lot of great examples out there in the universe. But can you tell us a little bit, I guess, about... When when you talk about the kind of Nazi monsters, which is what we were so excited to talk to you about today, I think of my husband playing Call of Duty and the entire, like, oeuvre of the Nazi zombie. Yeah, that I think is probably, especially now, the most common idea that people would have of the trope, but it's existed since World War II. Whoa. So the first Nazi zombie movie came out in 1941. Is called King of the Zombies. And then the second one, which is kind of a sequel to it, is called Revenge of the Zombies. And that came out in 1943. Just really in the thick of it. They were like, oh, yeah. like checks headlines. What should we make today, lads? And then that's what they made. <laughs> yeah. They were like right in with the, with the Nazi zombie thing. So that's it's not like it's some retroactive thing that started after the war and people were like, these guys were really bad. Let's make them even worse. They were like in the middle of it, these guys are bad. And here's, we need to really, really stress all of the potential ways they could, could be bad. Yeah. It's, it's not like a n- new, relatively new thing compared to sort of age, the age of Nazism, um, and the Third Reich. So yeah, I mean, it's been around for a while. <laughs> That's amazing. I never would have guessed that was true. I've been like, yeah, you know, that was probably a thing that started happening in like the 2000s, right? Like you're blowing my mind here. I love it. No, I mean, even like the Wikipedia page for Nazi zombies has like almost 30 or 30-ish movies listed. Yeah. And so that would be just movies that are large enough for someone to include them in this trope. So there are, are a million, I'm sure, like 
indie, small, whatever level production ones that aren't even included in this. And there are a million other ones that kind of are outside the bounds of Nazi zombies, but still fit into sort of Nazi monsters and Nazi voodoo and Nazi all kinds of other stuff. Um, And the most recent one was made in 2018. It was produced by J.J. Abrams. This is also still an ongoing thing. It's not like it started a while ago. There was a brief pause in the 90s for about 10 years, 10 to 15 years, where nobody was making Nazi zombie movies. And then they just reappeared in the early 2000s. Can I ask what happened in the mid-90s that they were just like, we're going to take a quick pause on Nazi zombies for a little bit? I have no idea. I have no, there's, I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of reasons you could speculate. Like maybe there's the fall of the Iron Curtain and there's a bunch of other stuff going on that people are like, we can focus on that. There's also the rise of the Middle East and Middle Eastern people being oh, yeah. like the, the villains in, in movies and Arabs specifically being like the villains, big villains in movies. But then we get right back to it in the sort of early 2000s. And there's a real like major resurgence of the Nazi zombie thing starting in like the 2010s ish. Mm-hmm. So right around like when a lot of video games started really popularizing the Nazi zombie thing as, as a video game trope rather than just a movie trope. Mm-hmm. So what's the fascination? I, I know that you mentioned sort of like, ah, yeah, like these are the these are the worst bads and killing them wasn't even enough. Like that would kind of be my assumption, right, that you sort of can sort of like raise them back from the dead. And that's, you know, especially, you know, egregious. It's also like satisfying to snipe a Nazi zombie like that. I totally understand. What in your scholarly perspective sort of is the fascination of some of these monster tropes? Well, I think it's I think you're right. Um, there's I was reading some of these like commentaries about this the other day because I was thinking about how are other people conceiving of this when or what are the conceptions that are really popular about this before coming on the show and one of the people I wrote this down somewhere on here oh uh one of you writing about it Issy van der Veld calls calls Nazi zombies a bad guys two for one sale like Mm -hmm. it's like so you're not just killing zombies you're also killing a Nazi zombie and so it really kind of doubles down on the like thing that happens especially when you play things like first person shooters which Mm -hmm. are like just kill as many people as possible as brutally as possible get extra points for blowing them up or whatever crazy thing you're gonna put them through basically and you can just remove any ethical compulsion whatsoever from that by being like oh it's a zombie it's also a nazi so there's just no there you feel no sense of immorality not that that is you know a real factor for most people playing these games but the, there's just you just don't have to worry about it you can just mm-hmm. you can just like in some of these games you can like stick a nazi zombie in a jet engine and like you can just feel totally good about yourself while you're doing it pretty much so i think that's pretty much the appeal to be honest yeah and i mean like the problem with kind of the zombie genre and a lot of different zombie movies and media and stuff have talked about this is like these used to be people like this is like, you know, you see like the one guy, you know, mourning his wife's death, but she's a zombie now and he can't kill her. And then it ends up leading to his own death. And like the moral quandary of like these used to be people that we love. And now they're like these kind of mindless eating and killing machines. But when you make it a Nazi, it's fine. It's okay. Like you don't even feel bad about it. You're just like, man, it sucks that that Nazi came back in the first place. Better kill it again. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And something I know you've commented on and that I see a lot in discussions about Nazis and pop culture, too, is these are not former people like zombies. These are current people. And, you know, that sort of collapsing of like 
human evil and monstrousness can, like you indicated, kind of remove some sense of like agency or sort of dehumanize perpetrators who ideas are still active and plans are still happening today. So how does kind of like monstrosity and like humanization sort of intersect? Um, I think that's a very good question. It's one that we've been asking ourselves since the Holocaust, since a, a million other sort of, not million, but, you know, lots of other genocides that have happened in the in the intervening period. Because in order to grapple with monstrous acts or with inhuman acts, it requires uh, an acceptance of humanity as not a wholly good thing or not mm-hmm. an entirely good set of actions, behaviors, whatever it is. And it's really hard to to try to explain to people that like lots of people do really evil things or have done what we would conceive as really evil things and being able to acknowledge that without immediately finding monstrosity in the sense of like classical monstrosity like you are a monster you are a non-human entity or a post-human entity or mm-hmm. undead or whatever saying that you know humans can do evil things without being monsters can be really really hard for people to accept and and I don't mean without being monsters in the in the sort of like metaphorical sense they can do evil things without being literally a monster mm-hmm. a non-human thing I mean even when people talk about Hitler for example there's it's a really common misconception and the fact that I'm having to talk about this is wild but a misconception that Hitler was possessed by a demon is something you hear a lot actually particularly during like the satanic panic that comes up a lot that he only did an evil thing because he was possessed by a demon and it's because he at one point underlined a passage in a book called Magic History Theory and Practice that says he who does not carry demonic seeds within him will never give birth to a new world so people are like boom evidence that Hitler was possessed by a demon. So it's like, even when they talk about like Hitler, like the guy, they still are like, well, maybe he wasn't really a human, maybe, or he was a human, but it was demonic possession that caused this. These plans couldn't come from within a human being without external source or like fertilization. Yeah, absolutely. There has to be some supernatural force acting on people to make them behave in this way. And it's like, no, actually, they can just do it. They, there doesn't need to be some external, supernatural, occult thing that's causing it. That And even those things are born out of human desire, born out of human consciousness. All of these, like even the occult is something that we came up with. So it's, it, you know, at the, at the end of the day, all of it together is very deeply human behavior rather than something that is an indicator of monstrosity as an as a non-human sort of concept yeah totally if that makes sense (laughs) no absolutely i think it's really interesting too because obviously this is kind of something that is i assume when they were making the 1940s zombie movies that they weren't aware as much of like the now really publicized like how much hitler loved the occult kind of stuff Mm -hmm. and it's really interesting that like nowadays anything involving the Nazis that is not just like straight historical fiction has some sort of occult twist on it, whether it's Indiana Jones or Hellboy or the Call of Duty Nazi zombies stuff. And I'm wondering where that comes from, I guess. Is it from the satanic panic like you mentioned? I'm not sure. I think there's a modern turn at the moment to be really into occult stuff anyways. Things like astrology, tarot, all those things 
are incredibly popular, like mm-hmm. at the moment. They're having this massive cultural resurgence in the sort of like re-enchantment thing is happening right now. And this desire to look at sort of the dark side of the occult while there's this resurgence of like what people would call sort of the light side or the bright side of it. They're looking at the dark side of it too as this sort of foil to what they see as the good, positive nature of re-enchantment or what what some people would consider the sort of good, positive nature of re-enchantment. You know, I don't actually know if there's like a good answer to why this is such a big thing at the moment. I mean, I went and saw Indiana Jones in theaters like a week ago and was like really taken aback when the bad guy was a Nazi living in America under a fake name. Cause I was like, that is a jump scare for me. <laughs> like, man, I just wanted to go watch a movie. I didn't consent to have my, my thesis brought <laughs> yeah. up right now. Yeah. Yeah. And then it was like, oh, and it's about magic and time travel and Nazi, the Nazi plan to travel back in time. And, you know, and th- that was like, well, I mean, not that specifically, but this, um, search for supernatural objects and religious relics and stuff. That was real. Like yeah. the Nazis had a group called the Ananerbe that were like doing that, looking for supernatural objects and religious relics and treasures and things like that. So, you know, and it was fairly certain it was founded by Himmler, who was like a big occult guy. Part of it is that it is, there is some basis in reality. There is some grounding in reality for some of this. But we just, through the use of, you know, movie magic and and video games and whatever, we've just really inflated it massively into this whole other thing there's no evidence that the nazis were trying to make zombies which also feels very silly to have to say but like they were into a lot of stuff zombies raising the undead not one of the things that they were as far as we know actively trying to do now i'm just wondering if like George Lucas read a really weird book one time, and now that's why we're obsessed with the Nazi search for the occult. Like, it might have just been that. It might have just been, like, one really big thing kind of snowballed all of the other stuff later. I mean, maybe. I don't see why not. (laughs) I just like to theorize. Obviously, I'm not the doctor here, but I just like to theorize some kind of stuff. Be like, George Lucas read a weird book at an airport library once and then, like, you know, went off. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of books on this. People love to, okay, people love to talk about magic. They love to talk about Nazis. And if you can put them together in one book, research project, whatever, they're all about it. It's That's like... You know, it's their sort of perennial interest for people of all different sort of political persuasions. Because if you're on one side, you will read that as like, this is the most evil thing ever. And if you're mm-hmm. on one side, you're like, how interesting. Like there's, you know, there's everybody can find something that they are interested in when it when it comes to especially things like Nazi zombies, Nazi monsters, etc. It feels like it should be a really niche interest, but in actuality, pretty much everyone can find something in it that they're like, ah, I didn't know that. And I would like to bring that up in a pub quiz or something. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> sure. I, I don't know if this is just my kind of speculation, um, but I think that people especially non-Jews trying to wrap their heads around uh, the the scope and fact of the Holocaust um, are sort of like y- your brain sort of is is 
thankful for the release valve of like, oh, well, they were trying to time travel. Like, oh, well, they were trying to, you know, like figure out magic. Like, oh, they were trying to sort of like, you know, um, Sorcerer's Stone, like Philosopher's Stone, you know, uh, do something otherworldly instead of the very like, again, like banal and common evil of, you know, a white supremacist, like racial and political agenda, um, which feels like part of the kind of subconscious um, fascination or almost like relief at some explanation that isn't, uh, no, this was a, you know, a forecasted and like fairly logical extension of like very clear public policy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's um, something that feels probably can feel relieving in the idea that, oh, they were doing this undead, they had this undead project, they had this monstrous project. There's a, there's a, um, movie that came out not that long ago, I think 2016 called Sharkenstein, where it was like, they were making a Nazi super shark. Like, you know, there's this whole thing where it's like, okay, it's relieving. They were doing this to someone else. When it, the actual reality of it is things like human experimentation that were happening on victims of the Holocaust, or that was happening on victims of the Holocaust, um, was for like, human improvement supposedly it was to create yeah and it was like these things that we're imagining as being about creating like you know frankenstein's monsters were actually about creating like a stronger uber human race um which is much scarier actually if you if you really think about it um and so you know in order to to create these monstrous things like a shark you don't necessarily need to be uh, experimenting on humans to do that. Mm-hmm. There was a, a project to bring back some extinct animals, and that's real. Um, the auric and the tarpan, which is like an ox and a horse from, I think, like the Jurassic period. Um, There's so, so many better options than those animals. <laughs> Without starting with man, I don't what know. are we doing? Yeah. It was, it was to bring back sort of like um, Germanic native wildlife from a time gone by kind mm-hmm. of thing. It was like, you know, to, to bring back german forest fairy tale place like genuinely yeah um and you know learning about that can be easier for people they feel more like well what a wacky bunch of guys doing that Mm -hmm. that's so stupid um but you know the counterpoint to that is that they're doing human experimentation for like looking at the future of space travel like so that people don't want to necessarily it can be really difficult to connect with that and to really like digest that. Um, and so I, I can understand how it can be relieving to imagine it just being about scary monsters and sharks and zombies and whatever else. I think the the scariness of the like evil next door is also another aspect of like Nazi lore and, and monsters that really interests me. So can you tell us a little bit more about the Nazi next door trope? Yeah. Um, so... The Nazi next door trope is usually one that's used to be or used in circumstances like the Indiana Jones movie, um, where there's a guy comes to the U S he changes his name. He's usually like a scientist or a spy. Um, he does lots of like dastardly secretive things. Someone catches him. He goes, you know, wild blows stuff up or, you know, is, is part of a secret network of, of Nazis operating in the U S in some sort of secret capacity Mm -hmm. to mess up some part of the U S government or, you know, manipulate 
policy or whatever. It, it's basically, there's a Nazi who came to the U.S. who concealed everything and he's trying to do something, you know, sneaky and subversive while he's, while he's here. Um, mm. that's not really the kind of Nazi that came to the U.S. for the most part. Um, or specifically when you talk about Holocaust perpetrators, because in most of these scenarios, the Nazi next door, it's not some guy who was like a paper stamper person who, or someone who was in just like the German army. It's not that right. like the Nazi next door trope is specifically about a guy or almost always a man, very, very rarely a woman, um, who came to the U S after working in something like a concentration camp or after leading the Nazi party in some aspect of something related to the Holocaust. It's like um, policy decision makers are like researchers are often most present in this trope too. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Um, 100%. People who are like, especially scientific researchers, that's a big part of this, um, who then came to US to like build rockets or whatever. Mm-hmm. And while a few of them did, um, the Perpetrators that I look at, I look at about 150 um, who were reliably accused of perpetration um, uh, through fraudulent immigration, because in the U.S. we can't actually um, prosecute anyone for Holocaust perpetration, but we can prosecute them for immigration fraud Mm -hmm. via Holocaust perpetration because they lied in order to enter the U.S. Because if we knew that they'd done that, we theoretically would not have let them in. Theoretically Uh, theoretically. being the key right there. (laughs) Theoretically. (laughs) Um, But... The majority of what people imagine to be a, a Nazi next door in the U.S. is someone who entered through something called Operation Paperclip um, or Project Paperclip, which is where um, Nazi scientists were brought into the U.S. to work on scientific things like space travel, etc. Um, of the 150 that I look at, only three of them were involved in Operation Paperclip. Mm. So the majority of the people involved in Operation Paperclip, not all, but a huge proportion of them, were actually just like normal everyday scientists who didn't really know what was going on, didn't really have involvement in things like this, in the sort of like hardcore Holocaust perpetration aspects of it. And only about three of them actually knew um, or were involved in the decision-making processes around this. Um the majority of Nazis living in the U.S. or former Nazis living in the U.S. were just like low-level concentration camp guards. They were mostly not German or Austrian, which is the most common misconception. Um, they were mostly Eastern European uh, concentration camp guards. So like Ukrainians or very common immigrants to the U.S. Um, who had had involvement in the perpetration of the Holocaust. A lot of people from the Baltics. So Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, um, that, that's really when we talk about a Nazi next door, that's really the guy we're talking about is a guy who like worked at a concentration camp in some capacity or was an auxiliary policeman, um, and came after that. Usually they use the same name that they had, um, like their actual name, um, But because of the Cold War, we didn't have access to their records that would have shown us that they were a Nazi until the sort of fall of the Iron Curtain. Um, So we, a lot of these people that we let in, we didn't really like know how, like we didn't know that they were Nazis and we didn't really have a way of knowing that they were Nazis necessarily. Um, We also had really terrible procedures to keep 
Nazis out. So it was, yeah. it was kind of, it was bad on all fronts, basically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's really important to, when we think about this sort of Nazi next door trope, to like really start to divorce it from our idea of like Nazi leadership and Germans and Austrians. Cause for the most part, that's not who, who actually came into the US. Mm-hmm. Um, and it dilutes our idea of the Holocaust itself, mm-hmm. like, because it, it leads us to believe that the Holocaust and all of its perpetration was an exclusively German Austrian phenomenon rather than one that was enthusiastically um, perpetrated and, and collaborated with like by people all over Europe and all over Eastern Europe. That's like so much of what we imagine to be uh, just a German plan while the plan was German, its execution was like very often not carried out by Germans or carried out by local people who who wanted to participate in a pogrom you know it's um so it's really important when we think about this and it it plays over i think it affects these like monstrous tropes as well Mm -hmm. we have so much more to ask you about these monstrous tropes about your uh time as a researcher and in academia and uh, other stories that you may have grown up with so let's grab a quick refill and then we'll be right back to it let's do it Hello, hello. It's Amanda, and welcome to The Refill. Especially welcome to our newest patron, Denise. I am so delighted you're joining us. And Denise, I don't know if you are into reality TV at all, but the thing that I am recommending this week that I want to make sure all of you know about is that arguably the best survivor player of all time, Sari Fields, is on Big Brother this season. Now, Big Brother is not a particularly uh, good show, but it is one that I really enjoy. And the community around it. Uh, Again, not all of it's good, but the parts that are good are really good. And being able to see like a truly once in her generation strategist like Sari play Big Brother is bringing me like the most dopamine I've ever experienced. So uh, that is my recommendation this week. You can find all kinds of TikToks and YouTube videos about why Sari is incredible. And these are very fun, small moments of people not knowing how good she is uh, in the Big Brother house or that her son is with her. They have the same face and no one knows. It's incredible, except for one person. Anyway, uh, welcome, Denise, and welcome and thank you, our supporting producer-level patrons whose support sustains this podcast and makes our work possible. Alicia, Anne, Brittany, Fruity Chick, Hannah, Jack Marie, Jane, Nieselkins, Lily, Matthew, Megan Moon, Nathan, Phil Fresh, Rico Like, Captain Jonathan, Malachi, Cosmos, Sarah, and Scott, and our legend-level patrons, Ariana, Audra, Bex, Chibi-Yokai, Morgan, Morgan H., Sarah, and Bia, Me Up, Scotty. You should join us today. Listen, if you enjoy this podcast, if it brings you joy, if it helps you through your week or you look forward to it every Wednesday, we would love your support for as little as four bucks a month at patreon.com slash spirits podcast. Now, we have some very exciting news, y'all, which is that we have new merch for sale. You can get five new tarot card designs. So if you have our tarot deck, our five favorite designs from that deck are now available on a black T-shirt. Plus, we also have an updated logo T-shirt. So, you know, we refreshed the Spirits logo and our fabulous designer, Allison Wakeman, uh, made an even uh, better, brighter, more incredible new version of the Spirits logo. You can now get that on a T-shirt at spiritspodcast.com com slash merch. I'm obsessed with these shirts. I love that you can get more tarot designs. And hey, if the nice green color of the previous tarot shirt wasn't for you, go grab a black one and you can be a, uh, a goth girly or you can be a, uh, a spooky friend all summer long. I know I am. 
We've been doing so much over at Multitude. Lots of people slow down over the summer, take some time off, take some breaks. Certainly in media, lots of people just kind of, you know, leave for the month of August. Uh, but we're over here cooking up a storm uh, because over on Join the Party, where Julia and I are players in a fabulous D&D campaign run by Eric Silver, we are doing the most. Uh, There have been so many incredible plot twists and updates and action happening. We are only about 18 episodes into our new campaign, so it's really easy for you to catch up. You can just go ahead and listen to it and marathon it over the course of a week or a weekend or the next long drive or travel day that you have and catch up. And if you don't know how to play D&D, don't worry. We have a 10-minute episode explaining everything you need to know about the game in order to follow the story along. I'm honestly so amazed and proud to be a part of Join the Party, and it is incredibly fun to record and release and see what people think of the story each week. So if you've been like, huh, D&D stuff seems interesting, or like, wow, I see people, you know, sharing stuff about their D&D campaigns online, or, huh, Tumblr really likes this, should I? I promise you, it's really fun, and you're really going to enjoy the work uh, that Eric and Brandon Krugel and Julia do over on Join the Party. So what are you waiting for? Pull up a chair and join us. Search for Join the Party in your podcast app or go to jointhepartypod.com. We are sponsored this week by Shaker and Spoon, a subscription cocktail service that helps you learn how to make handcrafted cocktails right at home. Now, the team at Shaker and Spoon, Anna and Amy and Mike, are absolutely fabulous, and they have been actually our oldest sponsor at this point. And they make an incredible product. They are another small business based here in Brooklyn. And for just 40 or 50 bucks a month, plus the cost of whatever the spirit is that that month's box is themed around, this is a really cost-effective way to enjoy craft cocktails and level up your bartending and mixology skills at home. Basically, they send you every single thing you need to make three different cocktail recipes developed by world-class mixologists, all themed around the same spirit. So I know what my go-tos are, but if I wanted to, you know, drink more like light rum or uh, one was like Canadian whiskey, you know, or something that I would never choose and I'm worried perhaps about buying a whole bottle because I'm like, oh, like, what do I do with this? Or maybe you you know, have something lying around that you bought for one recipe once and you're like, what do I do? Shaker and Spoon, a perfect solution. So whether you're having friends over, leveling up your own skills at home, or being an excellent house guest or gift giver, you can order a subscription or just a single box at shakerandspoon.com. And specifically, if you go to shakerandspoon.com slash cool, you can get 20 bucks off your first box using code cool. That's shakerandspoon.com slash cool. And finally, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. There is a lot going on right now in my life, in the world. And I know that for me, I feel a lot of uncertainty all the time. Uh, I am always wondering if the thing I am doing is right, if I may regret it later, if, you know, I have a couple choices in front of me, which one is right, which one I should do. And here's the thing, guys, half the time, just making a choice <laughs> is what I need to do. But I feel really worried or frozen by indecision or not sure which path 
path to take. And one of the ways that I deal with that situation is by talking to my therapist. And we get to talk through what is holding me back, what's making it feel difficult, how big or small the problem really is when it's not just being you know blown up inside my head. And before I was able to find a therapist who I liked and jived with, who I could afford and who was taking new patients in my city, I used BetterHelp, which is a really great way to have online, convenient, flexible therapy on your own schedule. Often therapists fill up in like their late afternoon and early morning appointments when most of us are going to be going before or after work. And it was really convenient in BetterHelp to be able to message with or video call or audio call my therapist at times that worked for me. So let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash spirits today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash spirits. And now let's get back to the show. Now, we always love to ask our guests what you have been drinking lately, whether that's cocktails, mocktails, sodas, lemonades, coffee creations, what have you. What have you been enjoying lately? Um, well, I am a non-drinker, uh, but I spent a very long time working in cocktail bars. So I'm like very, uh, if I want to recreate the experience of drinking cocktails and drinking nice things uh, without the alcohol. So... Lately, I've been having a lot of like water from well, water from a tap, <laughs> but um, with lemon and mint from my garden, yes. that's been really nice. Doing that like pretty much every day. Now we have a picture of that. That's what I have in my glass next to me. <laughs> um, there also are a lot of really good non-alcoholic uh, liquors at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so like zero proof liquors, which are, I'm getting really, really into. Um, yes. so I've been having a lot of no gronies yes. at, at restaurants. If you can get one at a bar, if you just ask, do you have any like non-alcoholic gin or anything like that? And then you tell them you want a no grony, they're usually like, Yes, we get to so, finally use this. Our, uh, yeah. our studio is right by St. Agrestus uh, Distilling, mm-hmm. which makes um, like a bottled phony Negroni is, is what they call it. And like mm-hmm. liqueurs and stuff um, that are all zero proof. It's it's very cool. There's a, a place near us that has this um, on tap or not on tap, but like on in stock uh non-alcoholic Amaro, which has been Hell pretty yeah. wild to get to have. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's amazing. Yes, I want that, please. Incredible. Oh my gosh, that sounds so good. I, I need some recommendations for really good brands for uh, non-alcoholic liquors, so please send them my way. I'm, yeah, I'm so I will. stoked. So let's get back into talking about Nazis. You know, you know Julia, we're, we're living in a banner time not just for non-alcoholic spirits and beverages, but also for anti-Semitism. That's the, that's the transition that, that I would say right now. Amanda, thank you. You're that's way better. Yeah. <laughs> and you're right. And you're right. <laughs> it's it's the it's the new hotness. There's the old kind and there's the new hotness. And it's just like, you know, what what a time to be a scholar of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the weirdest things has been I don't think I have a single day on the internet where I don't encounter something totally wild, like in terms of anti-Semitism, some like n- new Nazi thing happening. I get tagged into some conversation I was not prepared to have. Like 
every single day. And, you know, like, it's like the Indiana Jones thing. You go into a movie and you're like, this is going to be a fun, you know, nostalgic throwback to my childhood. Nazi. Like, immediately. <laughs> well, one thing that really, I'm sorry to, like, quote your academic biography to you, but um, okay. I did read on uh, University of Edinburgh's website that you co-created the Emotionally Demanding Histories Group, which, as soon as I read it, I was like, uh, of course, emotion and emotional burden and the emotional effect of research and secondary trauma are a thing among researchers and scholars. Can you tell us about that and how you either found or didn't find and then made community among other researchers of weighty topics? Topics. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of my favorite things to talk about because um, good. I was like, I don't want to make you talk about your like extracurricular work, but <laughs> no. Um, basically, uh, EDHG was born out of uh, a really depressing coffee conversation that one of my very good friends, um, Dr. Emily Rose Hay, uh, she and I had. She works on um, child homicide, and basically. We were in the first year of our PhD and our cohort would like meet up for these big brunches or whatever. And, and we'd have these classes together and everyone would talk about their like fun, interesting topics or their like the fun things facts. that are like, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm doing the history of gaming and I'm doing all this stuff. And I was like, that's great. And then she and I would emerge from these meetings feeling like, well, I feel like shit. You know, I can't, you can't have this. People would be like, let's do Halloween and let's dress up as our topic. And she and I were like, no, no, no. Good. I mean, can't do that one. Yeah. Like there was an occult belief that like Aryans are descended from the people from Atlantis. But as soon as I start explaining it, it's going to get real dark real fast. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. Um, So like, (laughs) She and I had this coffee conversation one day, and she and I actually didn't really know each other at that point. Like, we were in our the same cohort together, but we hadn't really, like, connected in any real meaningful way. And she was like, hey, I want to talk to you about the fact that I feel really sad about my research sometimes, and I don't feel like anyone else that I'm talking to is going through this. And I was like, well, I definitely am. And we were like, well, let's start talking about this more frequently. And then we were like, well, what if we start a group? Or do these groups exist? And it turned out that they existed um, for people who do like social sciences, mm-hmm. like psychologists, for example, right. will have these emotionally demanding research groups. Um, some anthropologists that would come up with would sort of would come up in their circles, um, and it just didn't exist for history, like at all. And we were kind of baffled because we. We're like, okay, but we're studying just because it's in the past doesn't mean I'm not studying straight up genocide. Like when I talk about Holocaust perpetrators in the US, that also requires me to be very specifically and deeply researching their behavior during the Holocaust Mm -hmm. in order to understand a sort of mental state that follows them after that. Um, And so we were like, okay, well, then maybe we should think about this becoming a thing. And we made this group, which ended up being the first group ever to, to, work on emotionally demanding aspects of history and and secondary trauma in in history and historical research. Um, And we've had scholars of all different kinds of things, genocide, sexual violence, um, colonial violence, all kinds of stuff, like who are working with really, really difficult, really heavy topics um, come and join us and speak at our events and do our conferences and things like that in our workshops. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a field that 
really deserves a lot more attention because so many researchers feel really deeply affected by the work that they're doing. And you don't even necessarily have to be a part of a group that would be targeted. Like you don't have to be a child or a mother to Mm -hmm. read all day about child homicide and feel like horrified by it. And also to have actual experiences of secondary trauma. And that I think is what we were trying to do is to connect the idea of like this feeling you're having is actually not normal is actually not a feeling that you should be having. And what you're experiencing is a secondary trauma response. Um, And I think that gets thrown around a lot. Like the idea of trauma responses and trauma gets sort of like thrown around sometimes for somewhat trivial things now. But we were talking to people who are like, oh, I have nightmares every single night about Mm -hmm. what I research. Or I, there's one woman who said like, I double check the locks on my doors or triple quadruple check the locks on my doors every single night Mm -hmm. because I'm so scared of someone breaking in because I work on robbery and violence in the, I think it was like in the 1800s. Like it's, it's, we're not talking about things that happen now, but it's, you get so um, engulfed in this thing. You're so entrenched in it that it's just like your whole mind gets altered by it and you experience real feelings Um, yeah, like it's, I mean, the way that Emily Rose deals with it is, you know, she'll, she runs or used to run a brownies troop, which is like a little Girl Scout troop in the UK to, cause she could get to like see kids play and do something fun. But we also need professional organizations to help you with those things. You can't just be like, well, here's my personal solution to this problem. No, it, you know, yeah, I suggest you all start uh, being a mentor <laughs> to a Girl Scout troop. That's, a, that's <laughs> yeah. my solution to this problem. It, it also it yeah. feels like a fantasy of like the like heteropatriarchy to say that like emotion never factors into research, especially in academia, um, especially in yeah. higher education. But like, of course, and it you know, it would be lying to say that the emotion and perspective of the researcher or the writer or the professor, you know, has nothing at all to do with the output that they have and the historical record and like all kinds of other aspects of history. Yeah. And I think one thing that's important is that um, ethics play a huge role in in history and the idea of, of ethical um, compulsions and what you owe to your to your subjects that comes up a lot particularly when you work on like modern and contemporary history because your subject might still be alive their family members might still be alive their grandkids like it it comes up a lot so you there are other aspects that are emotionally difficult that you have to consider like not just the thing that you're researching but like how do you talk about it how do you avoid traumatizing your readers Mm. which is real like you can spend you can write about violence but are you writing about violence in a way that is ethical to the people experiencing it or who experienced it are you are you writing about them in a respectful way or a sort of scandalized way um are you or a sort of like uh in a way that trivializes the violence that they experienced because you're focusing on the person who perpetrated it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are you using their full names? Are you using acronyms? Are you using aliases? Like these are real questions that we have to think about. And some researchers of other things don't have to think about that yeah. in that same way. Yeah, yeah like single cell bacteria aren't necessarily like reading work about their grandfather or something. Yeah. No, someone working on on some aspects of history that's not even like if you're working on monarchies for example, a lot of the times, you know, you're not too worried about. It's already all public knowledge. It's all you're not working on these sort of like really granular 
um, niche areas that will, you know, I don't want someone who is a child of Holocaust survivors or child of Holocaust victims, even, I don't want them to read something in my work that feels disrespectful to what their family experienced. Someone who is a Holocaust survivor, I don't want to read them to read something I've written and feel like it's, it somehow does them or the people around them a disservice. Like, mm. so, you know, there's a, there's a lot of a sort of consideration that needs to go into the work that we do at any given moment in a way that other researchers don't have that same sort of like emotional burden. And like, they aren't facing the same sort of risks. Also, if you write about child homicide, you are putting yourself as a researcher at risk. If mm-hmm. you write about Nazis, you are putting yourself at risk. <laughs> like yeah, it's yeah. a real thing. Um, and I think you're right to say that a lot of it has to do with this sort of heteropatriarchal um, thing because academia in general fits into that paradigm. And it's very common, especially with women, um, that in these sort of like hardcore violence areas or studies of them that we get pushed out very easily. And it happens for anyone who's in any sort of minoritized or marginalized group, but with women in sort of violent studies, it's like, this is for men. Mm -hmm. This is what men study. Women don't study this because it's too emotionally difficult. Right. So we were like, well, let's, let's work on that. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. And I, I'm I'm so glad you brought up ethics too, because um, something that my my husband Eric Silver and I talk about a lot is like the ethics of portraying Nazis. And his rule that I definitely want to uh, hear what yours perhaps is or your suggestion would be is that it's cool to put Nazis into a gamer story only if you can punch them. That the you know the the like representation, like you know, in, in his words, video games are a, a power fantasy and role playing games uh, to the same extent as well, storytelling of any kind, where being able to you know as a Jewish person punch a Nazi or not, or a queer person or a you know political dissident to do that is you know there is something reparative um, or at least you know uh, r- reclaiming in that act. Um, so how do you feel about uh, representing Nazism as a trope or just a character or like a background setting in any kind of piece of fiction? I think it's absolutely fine as long as the point the point of it or the purpose of it isn't to give them a redemption arc. Like, if your goal is to redeem a Nazi, to make them unpunchable, to make them an empathetic, sympathetic, whatever character, if the goal is to find your shared humanity amongst, between you and the Nazis, um, I think that's bad. And I, and I don't think that that is really an appropriate way of framing it. And I think it's also, it fits under the category of like too soon on that one. We're not, we're we're not far enough removed for, um, to be able to play around with those, with those sort of ideas, because what it ends up doing, um, is something that I have done a lot of other work on, which is it ends up often doing something called Holocaust instrumentalization, which is where you take the Holocaust, um, and you turn it into an instrument. You do it. Any context around it is divorced from it, and it just becomes about bad people doing bad stuff. Mean mean guys did a mean thing, and if we just have more empathy for them, if we just offer them a chance at redemption, yeah. then we'll discover our shared humanity and everything will be better, and then people will stop being mean. It's like we teach children sometimes, and there's a lot of pushback against this now, which is good, and we should be working against this about teaching children the Holocaust in the context of 
bullying is bad. <laughs> like right. being mean to people is bad. And so yeah. then so we'll say, and here's an example of what happens if you're mean to people and you give them the Holocaust. And it's like, it teaches you absolutely nothing about the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Absolutely nothing about it. It says nothing about the historical context. It says nothing about how hatred grows, how hatred is weaponized, none of those things. And so when you put a Nazi in, or you set something in, in Nazi Germany, or you make the Nazis win World War II and then come back and you're giving them a redemption arc, you're doing the same thing, essentially. You're saying, it's not the genocide they did that was bad it's just them in general and if you just you know if we just understand them as individuals a little bit more with a little bit more nuance then you know maybe there maybe there's some good in the nazi is kind of like it doesn't teach anyone anything but it kind of pretends to i would say it very often sort of purports to teach people something but there's not really any lesson being learned anywhere in there. Yeah, and removes it from Jewishness and anti-Semitism specifically, um, which is uh, another thing that, you know, people seem very eager to be like, yeah, 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 but like lots of groups have been, uh, you know, targeted in lots of ways and sort of move away from, you know, that specific context because they are uncomfortable for whatever reason that I don't necessarily care that much about, you know, in like looking at those exact details. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's, uh, a movement to reframe Nazi terror as not being directed towards any specific groups, but being just sort of like a general evil and terrorism that's happening against a lot of people. When in actuality, like there were very specific groups targeted for very specific reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and if we just uh, say the Nazis were bad to everybody, we lose that. You completely lose that, and and you do those people a, a wild disservice and an enormous disservice, um, and it's it's very bad, and it and it and it is to me as a researcher of it very worrisome, especially in this current moment when anti-Semitism is on the rise, and there seems to be uh, a push to call people who call out anti-Semitism Nazis and fascists. Yeah, which is. Incredible, kind of uh, incredible, yeah. <laughs> um, in the cannot give me incredulity way. Um, and I, I started like again quote your Twitter bio to you, but you call yourself in Twitter a uh, a literal a historian of literal Nazis in America. Why is that distinction important to make? <laughs> Maybe a softball question, but I'd love to hear you tackle it. Yeah, um, it's because people on the internet like to interpret things just in the wildest ways possible. They like to interpret things to just mean whatever they think that you mean, and that's fine. But I spend a lot of time saying, I study Nazis in America, and people go, well, your side are always calling everybody a Nazi, oh boy. and I'm not a Nazi. You're and I have to be like, I am talking about goose-stepping, uniform-wearing, SS member Nazis. I'm not talking about modern conceptions of neo-Nazis, which, you know, anybody can fall on any sort of spectrum on whether they think that that counts as a Nazi or not, whatever. I'm not talking about those. <laughs> like, I'm talking about the literal ones. And even yeah. that, I get a lot of pushback on because people refuse to believe that I could mean literal Nazis when I say literal Nazis in America. Do you like carry around like a few flash drives at this point and you're like, I have many gigabytes of uh, of like historical record I can show you. Yeah, I mean, I have a dissertation. You want to read it? It's called Holocaust Perpetrators as Immigrants in the Post-War U.S. And that's just a little bit less 
uh, pithy. Yeah. To, for I'm not going to use that in my Twitter bio. You know, like it's it's just like I find it very strange and very frustrating, and I get so much pushback on it for no reason, like other than people are especially on the internet, they just want to be mad. They just yeah. want to be mad at you and they want to they want to misinterpret whatever it is. Even something as clear as saying, I study literal Nazis in America. The and I'm not using the word literal incorrectly there. <laughs> I'm meaning the literal ones. Exactly. My final question for you is around um the experience of studying uh, effects and uh, survivors and also perpetrators of the Holocaust in the U.S. from the U.K. Um, and I'm curious kind of what that was like for you and how Holocaust memory and also denial differs in the U.S. versus the U.K. or other places. Yeah. Um, so one thing that's very good, especially because COVID lockdowns were happening in the U.K. during my my dissertation writing period, Um one thing that's very good is that because Holocaust survivor networks are so widespread now, um, an enormous amount of the research that I was doing was publicly digitally available. So a lot of the things that I look at, you right now could go Google them and find them in the archive that I was looking at. A lot of the things I look at are not publicly available necessarily, but a huge, huge portion of them were. So um I get asked that a lot. How do I study the U.S.? How is I a historian of the U.S. Um, from the U.K.? And the answer was, honestly, without that much difficulty. To be clear, I believe um, you were, and I believe you can. I just, I'm, I'm curious how that context sort of affected your work. Yeah, of course. I did not take it as <laughs> you being someone criticizing that. But um, it, it was also interesting because I'm obviously from the U.S. I was born and raised here. Um, I originally went to the UK to do my master's in human rights law um, because Edinburgh has one of the best schools in the world for that. Um, and interestingly, Edinburgh also has one of the best programs in the world for US history. And a lot of people do not realize this because the American context is so, people are so used to thinking that you can only study America from America. Mm -hmm. um, and that was not what I found. Um, and I had things like Zoom. I could, I used to have oral history interviews with Holocaust survivors over Zoom during the pandemic or during lockdowns. Um, and a lot of things that I looked at, like I was able to go to, to Israel to go to Jerusalem to work at Yad Vashem quite easily while, while there because it's much cheaper and much easier and closer, to go to Jerusalem yeah. from, from England or from the UK. I mean, I did fly out of London, but from, from the UK than it was to do it from the US. And there are more like grants available. The Royal Historical Society will pay for things like that. Um, so I found that part of it pretty, pretty interesting because I wasn't just looking at people who, were in the U.S. I was also looking at their life before coming mm -hmm. to the U.S. So I had to have mm -hmm. access to to European archives or like pretty easily. I had to be able to go to Germany or go wherever and and, and work in archives there too. Um, or at least be able to call them and contact them <laughs> without it being in the middle of the night for me. Yeah. Um, so that part was good. The context of studying the Holocaust in the U.S. and the U.K. is very different. The U.K. has a very robust Holocaust education uh, system in a way that the U.S. absolutely does not. Um, they have something called the Holocaust Educational Trust, um, Holocaust Memorial Day Trust, which both of those like actively teach Holocaust 
education and, and work around it and are constantly holding um, conferences and workshops and whatever to talk about how they educate um, young people on the Holocaust. So there's, I think, a much stronger understanding of it there than there is here. Here, mm-hmm. it's terrible. Our teaching of the Holocaust here is just awful. And um, while there are museums like the USHMM or the UCLA Shoah Center um, that are doing incredible work, the issue is that on a on a very widespread public policy level, children are not learning about the Holocaust. And now it's even more difficult for them to learn about the Holocaust. So I know a lot of Holocaust scholars in the U.S. who are constantly sort of stymied in their in their work here in a way that I was not mm-hmm. in in the UK. I so I had I would say a lot. I would say yeah, quite quite a lot of less restrictions there than a lot of people do here, which is really terrible. Um, so that that's my experience at least. Fascinating. I'm going to pull us back very quickly to Nazi zombies and Nazi monsters as a whole. And, like, this is kind of just, like, a, a parting for people to maybe do their own watching or researching and stuff like that. Is there a piece of Nazi monster fiction that you think is actually, like, a good representation of what that genre should be? Oh, man. Um, a good representation of what it should be? Yes, or what, what it, it should be. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I have no idea. It's okay. It, it doesn't, which sounds a bad, which is a bad no. answer, but there's, it's so, it's so difficult to find something that does it in a, a really good, appropriate way. And I am very open to suggestions as well. If anyone yeah. comes across something, I would love to interact with it. I think very often it's just used as sort of a cheap, like, Nazi zombies monsters are all this vector for evil if you come into contact with them you you become evil too and I haven't thus far experienced one that I thought was like oh this is doing a really good job of making me think in some deeper way about it that being said if if anyone comes across one I would genuinely love to to read it watch it whatever it is um Unfortunately, no, which I'm sorry if that's not a very good No, no, answer. that's that's genuinely actually what I was kind of expecting to be the answer because it feels like almost like disrespectful in, in several ways. And I feel like maybe if there is a Jewish writer out there that like actually like wrote about this and is doing it in a way that I should know about, like I want to hear about it, you know? Yeah, I always recommend yeah, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, but that's kind of like a, you know, a Jewish joy, you know, like kind of superhero, um, like uh, speculative uh, fiction novel, which there's also a lot of, I think, space for and, you know, completely understand if uh, Jewish writers don't want to, like, really heavily engage with, like, Nazism and representing them in fiction. Um, but uh, Dr. Claire Aubin, where can people find you online to recommend uh, reading uh, for pleasure and for work to you and also just enjoy your uh, stellar tweets? Uh, I am on Twitter at C-E-A-U-B-I-N, C-E-A-U-B-I-N. Uh, and that's kind of the main, that's the main spot to get me at. 
Um, and my DMs are sometimes open, sometimes not, <laughs> depending on what the mood of online Nazis are. <laughs> yep. Know the feeling. Uh, incredible. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so glad that Eric was like, uh, hi, you two should know each other. Um, and indeed, it has been an incredible time. Um, so thank you very much. And uh, folks, remember, when you are staring into the maw of history, stay creepy. Stay cool. Stay cool. 